Hi, I'm Ali. And I'm Penny, and you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write. The podcast about writing, publishing and creativity amongst life's many other demands. Today, Ali and I are joined by Julia Silk. She's an agent at the Charlie Campbell Literary Agency and has worked in publishing for more than 20 years. She's been an editor, a bookseller, and now an agent since 2016. Julia represents a really wide range of nonfiction and fiction authors, an excellent range, I might say. Um, and as well as that, she is uh, very supportive and participates in lots of events such as Word Factory, Spread the Word, and the Working Class Writers Festival. And Julia is also a judge on the Bath Novel Award 2021 as well. Welcome to uh, Not Too Busy to Write. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, thanks so much for being here. I think it's so important for, um, for writers to hear directly from agents because so often there's so much kind of mystery around the idea of how you can access agents and what the process is. So thank you so much for coming and talking. So I think it really does help to demystify things. You're welcome. Well, so I think we should just start with the absolute base basics, which is what exactly does an agent do? <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, an agent has many roles and sometimes it partly depends on what a client wants from their agent. But as well as negotiating deals, we also help clients to develop their work, um, to strategize for their we're kind of mentors and handholders and help smooth the path sometimes when they're um, being published. If there are any issues or difficulties that arise with their publisher, we're always there to kind of keep the relationship happy. Um, and sometimes if we have to, we'll be the bad guy so that um, the author doesn't have to. <laughs> That's I think, a really nice way of putting it. <laughs> I think what's really interesting about what you just said, um, I think a lot of people tend to see an agent as uh, someone who's going to sell their work and make them millions and millions of pounds and that's what the agent's going to do. And perhaps people don't realise um, how multifaceted and how complicated the role is as well. Um, and also the kind of editorial process that can happen with an agent so are you quite involved with manuscripts early on with shaping what they become before they go out on submission yeah I mean it tends to vary a sort of slightly different process between non-fiction and fiction um and I mean I do both um with non-fiction generally when you make a submission um as, as an author when you're when you're sending your work to an agent for possible representation and and for the agent sending to editors you'll usually send um an outline and a proposal and some sample material rather than a full manuscript. Um, and there is obviously people usually advise when they're writing fiction to, to submit a, the first three mm. chapters um, and a synopsis, but to have the full manuscript ready and as polished as they can make it. And that is good advice. And I, I would definitely always advise that, but certainly I, and a lot of um, other agents that I know who are quite, have quite a kind of editorial background, will sometimes take people on at an earlier stage um, and help them to develop. So I have clients that I've taken on and um, one client that I took on on the basis of 5,000 words and, a, um, and an outline. Um, I mean, that that client was already, you know, as was already a journalist and a writer. So, mm -hmm. but I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean you can, you can write a novel, um, yeah. but it certainly means that, you know, you, you write for a living and that's, that's what you do. And you know mm -hmm. that that person's going to most likely kind of continue with that process and be quite comfortable kind of developing their work with you um, and also I think that part of the whole kind of submitting your first three chapters and, and having your full manuscript ready kind of relies on the, on the belief that agents are taking things on um, just things that are sort of sent into their submissions inbox but actually agents are often very proactive in terms of looking for um, mm. clients themselves so you know sometimes we'll find clients who are on maybe unpublished writer award shortlists or um, we've kind of found them in some other way become aware of them within a particular writing community so I mean obviously Twitter's an obvious one um, and there are a lot of authors that I've become friendly with who some are published some are unpublished that are just part of what I see as my own personal reading and writing community mm -hmm. on Twitter and 
I really love that space because although they may have, you know, and, and it's always a two way street. I'm, I may have turned them down for a representation. They may have turned me down. They might have had, you know, there might have been several people competing for them. Um, but, I, but it's all about, it's so much of it is about a kind of relationships and, um, and I just, I see it all as a, as a kind of big part of what I do. It's not just about my client list. Mm. I think that's also really interesting where you talk about being turned down, because this was something that I was actually thinking the other day, that people always talk about writers facing rejection all the time. And we do, we are rejected. A lot of it is that kind of growing a very thick skin very quickly. Um but you don't really think of it in terms of agents being rejected, also publishers being rejected. It's actually an industry-wide rejection is oh, happening is. all the time. Yeah, it's it's brutal. <laughs> <laughs> and I know all agents and all editors feel it. And, and I've had so many conversations with editor friends and agent friends, and particularly over the past you know year and a half, because that's been tough for everybody, whether you're a writer or in publishing or not. Um, and sometimes, you know, having less of those sort of comforting conversations with colleagues and, and, and associates that you see regularly, you're sort of sitting in your little home going, oh, God, no one said yes to anything for, for weeks um, and feeling kind of like what, questioning yourself and what you're doing. And, and honestly, believe me, I mean, I say this a lot and maybe I should be trying to keep the mystique alive but I, I do talk <laughs> a lot about how how much rejection there is for for people working in the industry as well as authors trying to to come in because it's constant um, and it's a total roller coaster I don't really know a single agent who doesn't sometimes hate it as much as they love it but mm. and that same goes for everybody I think it's really important to talk about because if you're only talking about it from the kind of perspective of authors being rejected then it feels like you know poor us um but when you're thinking about it industry-wide it kind of actually helps just thinking well yeah. everybody's got to deal with this and you just kind of have to put on your big girl pants and get on with it yeah you do <laughs> <laughs> um i'd love to know um when you are open for submissions i know as i, I know most agents open and close depending on how busy they are um at different times of the year but when you are open for submissions how much of your time are you do you set aside or how, how much what kind of portion of time do you set aside for looking at new work um because obviously you're juggling it with with your current clients as well yeah you are that's a really good question i mean i definitely think that different agents would have wildly different answers to that and that will partly depend on what they're what their life outside of their work is like. I mean, you know, I, I love my children, but they are reading time stealers and sometimes <laughs> in a bad week, or like I just look at them and they see two reading time stealers. Um, <laughs> and so, and it also partly depends on the week. Like if I'm doing, and, and things seem to go in cycles. So sometimes I feel like all my clients have delivered their next book all at once. And all I'm doing is kind of editing and developing work and, and, then the brain capacity because it's, it's the it's the actual time but it's also the sort of brain space that you yes. have um so i don't really think there's a sort of straight answer for that but i'm trying to get more organized so that i kind of start the day with an hour of reading so even if i don't manage to do any more because i'm falling asleep over my kindle at 9 30 at least i know every day i've done some and I've kind of chipping away at the pile of, of reading that I really want to do because so often I see things come into my inbox and I often have a very quick look just in case I miss something I don't want to miss something you know super hot um, so um, sometimes I'll see something and I'll be like I, I instantly have to read it and and in the nicest possible way that doesn't happen all that often because a lot of things that I read are maybe a little bit more of a slow burn or they need a little bit or they're going to need a bit more work and they require a bit more thought so um that's a really rambling answer to your question but there isn't really a set amount of time no I mean it was I, a slightly a trick question because of course <laughs> I mean which uh, who of us at all I mean maybe some people have very rigid working lives <laughs> so they know the exact answer to that but I love that so you can you can sort of set aside a bit of time at least to do a bit of reading and then you can do more as and when it's possible yeah and then sometimes if I start that hour earlier in the day and and I'm really enjoying it and I really know that I want to read this whole full manuscript then I'll kind of just make I sort of make more time mm -hmm. as and when there's something that I'm really keen to read quickly yeah I mean I think that's true of all reading isn't it it's a bit like 
having a love affair. It's like you might be really busy, but if your book is really amazing, you're going to make time to finish your book and everything else will be damned. <laughs> yeah, that's really true. And I think the re reading as well for pleasure is not just reading for pleasure. It's like, and I, and I mean, again, I've had this, have this conversation often with other editors and agents. Sometimes we'll go for like a month or two months where we, we just haven't read anything for pleasure at all. Yeah. And you suddenly start to sort of, you know, you question your judgment and you're not quite you just it's like you need reading for pleasure as a to calibrate your your sort of opinions and tastes and to, to feel like you really have a grasp on kind of what people want and what everyone's reading at the moment and it's mm. really really important and, and also it's a totally different kind of reading so mm. um sometimes I sometimes I really do give myself a pass and if I feel like my focus isn't right on on submissions then I might you know read two or three books in a row mm. for pleasure oh <laughs> nice I know I wanted to ask you about that because I think it's firstly that happens to me I've not read for pleasure um probably for a few weeks just because I'm reading I'm researching a lot and it's it's that weird feeling when you're reading all the time but you're not actually just reading for the sake of it and you can't switch off you yeah know, when you're reading because it's a different hat and I wanted to ask you what what kind of multifaceted hat you're wearing when you're reading for work because I assume but I wanted to talk about it that you must be thinking not just is this good but you must be thinking can this sustain a full manuscript is this commercial you know what are you actually looking for when you get yeah submission? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that was my hardest lesson as an agent to learn because obviously having come from being an editor for so long, what you read's already kind of been filtered. And it's not just that it's been filtered for the quality of the writing, it's been filtered for like everything, the concept and whether that's something that the agent thinks can sell and how to make it more sellable because obviously you're the first person they're trying to sell it to as an editor. Um, and I and I, and I I know that, you know, the, for me and I know for a lot of other agents, the most difficult thing is when you have a submission and it's a manuscript and you, you know, you like the idea and you like the way it's been presented and you like the first three chapters and you ask for the full manuscript. And I've actually had a couple like that recently where I've really enjoyed reading them. Actually, I've read them all the way through the, the person writing it. They're really good. They're really well written. They're polished. Um, and I, I sit, sometimes sit on them for a while and I'm, I feel terrible always that it takes me a long time to get back to people sometimes because the hardest ones are the ones where you're like, this is a really good writer. They're a really promising writer. The characterization is excellent. I really enjoyed reading this. But I know that if I send this out, most editors are going to come back to me and say that there just isn't quite enough there for them to be able to break it out. And fiction is so, so hard to sell at the moment. And, and again, a lot of agents won't ever say this or admit to this, but unless it's amongst themselves but you know people are just sending things out and they're just not selling to editors because mm. they're good but their their editor is just worried that they're just not gonna sweep people off their feet mm -hmm. and it's almost like you know even if you sell something to an editor the selling chain is so long you know as an author who's submitting to agents you've got to sell it to the agent they've got to sell it to the editor the editor's got to sell it to their team team's got mm -hmm. to sell it to the retailers the retailers have got to sell it to the consumers and if a single part of that uh chain is weak in any way or perceived to be weak um that is tough and i remember actually there's a, an author that i whose work i really liked um and I met her, uh, I actually met her just at a launch party for something else and we chatted and she sent me her book um, and I and I thought she's a, re a really good writer and I kind of wrote back to her and actually it was one of my slightly more brutal ones and I kind of said this is all very well but actually I didn't say this is all very well I think I said you know, I really <laughs> like your writing and your characterization and this and that but but kind of what's the point? What's the mm -hmm. point of this story? And uh, about a year, a year and a half later, she came back to me and um, she said, you know, you made me really think about what the point is. And here's a story that I think has, I've really, really worked on that. And here's a story that I think has much more of a point. And I absolutely loved it. It was fantastic. And it was really wonderful. And unfortunately, several other agents loved it too. So she <laughs> decided to go with one of them. Um, but, you know, uh, that, I think that's something you've really got to ask yourself because quite often, and this kind of leads into something that I know that you wanted to talk about, a sort of mistake that people make in submissions, is that, you know, they've got a story that they're really attached to for whatever reason. And thematically, the story feels really important to them. Maybe it's about, I don't know, grief or love or loss 
boss or whatever it's about and they really focus in their submissions letter on on thematically what the book is but that doesn't really tell you everything because anything because this is a book about friendship and loss and love could literally be pretty much about anything right I mean yeah <laughs> <laughs> almost any book um and, and then when it either they don't really tell you what the story is in the in in their kind of cover letter blurb that kind of bit the bit that's supposed to sell it to you or they they I mean they, they maybe don't really tell you what it's about or they do but it just still doesn't feel like it's quite and you read it and you're like well it is about all these things but what's the story and what's kind of the hook what's the concept yeah. mm-hmm. that goes beyond it just just the themes and, and to me that's a really big that's an issue mm. that's one of the, probably the biggest issue I think that is part of understanding understanding what story is mm. and I think in a way that's something that isn't necessarily talked about and taught necessarily very often of what a story actually is and what makes a story um, because working with nonfiction writers now on, on submissions and things, um, it's really interesting because so often I, I will know exactly what they're going to say because I've had a long conversation and I've read chunks of material and then I read what they're going to send in for submission. And I'm like, you haven't told me any of what mm-hmm. I know is in there. And it's, it's like a, almost like a tentativeness of not being able to get yeah. into the meat yeah. of it. I think as well, it's that thing of when you're telling your story, it can feel so important to you because it's yours and you you can get very blind to the kind of mechanics of that this has to be something that you can sell. It's got to yes. be something Absolutely. that can be made commercial and you've got to, and it's stories that we want. We did a lot of work. So I know that MAs aren't something that are for everybody, but we did a lot of the very kind of nuts and bolts brutal kind of commercial side of the industry when I did my MA and the one thing that we got taught was what is the point of this book why are you writing this book and who will you sell it to and if you can't answer that at the very beginning Mm -hmm. then go back and work it out yeah yeah. and I think there's this idea that you know literary is about um language and uh, and themes and commercial is about story and plotting and actually you know to me it's it's really difficult when you're talking to anybody even when I'm talking to myself about these things you know what is literary what is commercial these are things that we use and we bandy them about and it's like oh this is a this is a literary imprint and this is a commercial imprint when we're talking about you know who we're going to sell it to as an agent which editor or publisher you're going to sell it to um but actually, you know, even when and those things have become increasingly blurred. And I think what people maybe think about still as literary or, or used to talk about as literary was was almost now I, the kind of almost verging on sort of experimental. And actually anything else has to be commercial. So even the literary imprints, you know, you're looking, you're 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 already looking quite often at things that are you know quite high concept there's a lot of story and a lot of plotting in there and of course you know the expectations of of the sort of subtleties of characterization and, and plotting may be you know, slightly different than they would be in just a uh, I say just obviously brilliant page turning pulse pounding thrillers are a <laughs> wonderful thing but there's some of those are sort of incredibly commercial and and they're really all about, they are really all about story and plotting and, and not a huge amount else. And, and that's fine. That doesn't matter because the people who want to read those and buy lots of them to read, they just want another story. And, and that's fine. That's, that's great. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's why I watch a lot of Netflix series because I just want to escape into the story and I don't really want to analyse much at that point. Um, and so um, aside from that, what, would you say... What is it that when something captures you, I know it's really difficult probably to pinpoint exactly, but when you get a submission, and you can talk about fiction and nonfiction separately if you like, um, what is it about, for instance, uh, a cover letter, an email, and and a synopsis or, or kind of overview or proposal that um, that kind of sparks something in you that kind of makes you kind of go, oh, I'm reading this, I'm reading this yeah. today? Um, well, apart from if it's it sounding like a good story, 
it's honestly a feeling it's that kind of that tingling kind of oh i really have to read this um you know sometimes i'll read the first few pages and i go like i'll go into the kitchen and start reading it out loud to my husband because i was like oh you have to listen to this and and that's always a kind of that's always something about the writing and the characterization some some kind of immediacy that you get in the first few pages as well i really what i don't want a lot of scene setting and a lot of background in those first few pages that's a mistake that a lot of people make as well that they feel like they have to tell you what's going on before you actually get into the action or you meet the characters I want to kind of see them in place doing their doing their thing immediately because then it's like you're letting me you're you're letting me sort of into who they are immediately without telling me who they are and you know all this show don't tell you know yes I mean you have to tell sometimes you can't constantly only be showing because then you end up in some ends up getting a bit sort of tortuous but but it definitely I think definitely in that first instance showing is great um so it's about that it's about that cover letter with that has a real coherence and clarity about what it is mm. and about what the story is and it really should be a blurb the synopsis I mean the synopsis should be interesting enough and it shouldn't overload you with details either so you know stick to the main plots don't bring in loads of different subplots you know if there's 15 characters and you can handle that in the book great but don't tell me all their names in the synopsis otherwise I'm just going to lose my way halfway through um so you know five characters maybe in and and, uh, the main plot and, and a subplot is fine for the synopsis and then that should take you all the way through the, the story arc but the cover letter the story that you're telling in the cover letter should be like the blurb the thing that makes the reader pick the book up in the bookshop or look at the blurb on Amazon and, and want to buy it um, and then it's so it's about that and it's and it's also about the first few pages mm. and with non-fiction um, is it um, what are you looking for particularly? Are you looking for things like, um, you know, um, the authority that the writer has to write what they're proposing, that kind of thing? Um, yes, to a large extent. Um, and it's also about the writing. I kind of, I love, I, even in the most sort of practical side, because I do a lot in um, kind of women's health and well-being and lifestyle and that kind of thing. And I'd say the thing that all my clients in those that area have in common is I just really love to read their writing as well. Mm -hmm. So from the most practical, someone like Maisie Hill with period power and perimenopause power, she's just a really good writer. Mm -hmm. She kind of makes you smile and laugh and kind of go, <gasps> you know, when it, it, just even reading something like that where where it's not narrative nonfiction at all. But she does still tell, she still tells stories though like oh. imperial power she still introduces you to the book by telling you what made her first get into you know what she what she talks about um and claire seal um with um uh real life money um it's it's There's really a lot of powerful storytelling in that book i mean both yeah because really that's part memoir and part um part memoir and part kind of practical things that she learned and uh, but she's got a story to tell that kind of really draws you in. And you're like, oh yeah, you know, I really get why, I really get why this is important to you and why, why we should be listening to what you have to say. Mm. Um, and it, she's interesting because she's almost sort of done it the other way around. Like she's becoming an expert in that area. She is yes. so, yeah. she, she's become an influencer and an expert in that area. And when I say influencer, I mean, really she does have influence. Yeah. And she has changed a lot of people's lives by her approach. Um, so just things, things like that. And, and actually quite a few of my, um, non-fiction writers are interested in or have started writing fiction so which I think actually tells you that they were that actually they were it it was as much about the fact that they are writers as that they are experts and that's a personal thing for me that's my that's my that sort of speaks to my own interests mm -hmm. um, and I think yes you, you know particularly in that kind of area where it's about having some um influence in that area whatever that means to yeah. you because otherwise it's very hard for publishers to to get a kind of a starting point for how they're going to break that book out yeah. if you don't have your own platform but you know Maisie only had I think Maisie had about 4,000 followers on Instagram yeah. and obviously Instagram isn't the only place you can have influence but just as an example and now I don't know she's got what 40 or 50 Thousand? Yeah, yeah the thing is, it's not always about numbers, is it? It's about, no, I guess, having well. an authoritative voice yeah. and some influence within an industry that people are kind of 
looking to you for what you're yes. saying about a topic, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I was actually going to ask about memoir because this, I know there's been some talk um, from another memoir writer who I know she was talking on Twitter about should we be selling memoir slightly differently? Should it be sold on proposal? Should it be sold on full manuscript? So when you get a memoir, are you kind of looking for full manuscript? Are you looking for a proposal? Are you just looking for story? What is it you're looking for? Um, it depends. It's sort of case by case. So all the memoirs that I've sold, I've sold them all. I think I've sold them all on proposal. One of them, I made her write the whole thing because I didn't feel like she really knew what it was until she'd excavated everything. Yeah. She wrote the whole thing. And then the editor who bought it is someone I do quite a lot of work with and, and I know her approach and her taste really well. And so I, when I sent it out to editors, including her, I sent a, a proposal and an outline. Um, and I told a few of them that I did have the whole thing. And she asked to see the whole thing. And she, and she bought it on the basis of the whole thing. Yeah. I know that sounds a bit kind of odd. And normally I do, I, you know, I have a consistent approach and I give all editors the same thing. And sorry. Um, so, um, yeah, I, but I, but it worked, that's how that worked in that case. And I think it's, you know, people say a lot of things, there's a lot of conversation about memoir and rightly so. It's a, such an interesting conversation, isn't it? Mm. You know, the whole conversation about, are you writing from the scar or the wound? And are you writing, you know, should you have fully resolved whatever it is that, because a memoir isn't, isn't autobiography. It's not about your whole life. It's about a moment in time and why that's important. Um, so and I and I don't think that's a right answer. Yeah, I, I think a it's lot of fascinating about memoir. Yeah, there's there's so many conversations that we could have about memoir, and obviously I'm obsessed with it. Um, since I've spent three years in the kind of trenches with it, yeah. But, I love. Um, I mean, I think memoir is amazing, and I love those books that are kind of that start like something like a book like The Fact of a Body, which started out as like an investigation and became this part memoir and 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 actually there you know were two sort of broken people in this book and I mean I love I just I could I could if I had to only ever read one thing for the rest of my life it would probably be memoir because that can encapsulate so much I mean mm, yeah. yeah yeah that's it so really true can. isn't it mm. yeah because mine was so I didn't approach um an agent until I'd written mine although I also wrote a proposal but I was too scared um, to approach anybody in case it went wrong. And I had a lot riding on it in my head. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I wrote the full thing because I found it really hard to plot, uh, kind of to plot, uh, to kind of draw out the story from the personal experience. And I was very um, sure that it needed, obviously, to have these plot points because it's not just like you say, it's not just kind of going, blur, this happened to me on the page. Um, and then I approached my agent once I had the full manuscript. So that was how I did it, but I know everybody does it differently. And it's really interesting to hear the different ways that people have, approach as have well. most of the memoirs that you've sold on proposal been from writers who have published before? Or has it been a mix? Um, it's been a mix, um, but they haven't always published in that area. And when they have published yeah. before, they've made, it's been it's in, different. It's been yeah. different things. But I mean, like going back to what an agent is for as well and why you need what. And also, it's not just about what an agent does. It's kind of why do you need an agent? Because I think a lot of people ask that question and there's so many reasons why you might need an agent. I mean, you know, over the whole overarching reason why you need an agent is a publisher works for, you know, an editor works for the publisher. An agent works you and also I think what a lot of people don't realize and this particularly is the case with memoir is how you know exposed you're going to feel when you publish your first book um, and even more so it's always personal of course it is whatever the book is and when you write memoirs even more personal and if the thing that's happened in the memoir is maybe also ongoing or ongoing to a certain extent it's even more it can be even more personal and agents are also there to kind of Agents are always there to, to some extent, protect you from certain things. And when you're, and, and that can be, I mean, you know, an agent isn't your mum and they're not your therapist, but equally they do have, a, I think, a role uh, to some extent of, of care and some authors need and want that more than others. Mm -hmm. um, 
and so that there's an element of that as well mm. I think that's such an important point I've you know for years had an agent as a photographer and I've always absolutely loved working with an agent and um, it's not necessarily what people always expect you to say but um, I love it because it's a collaborative relationship and it feels to me like as someone who's been freelance there basically their entire life um, is that like a really long-standing um, close work relationship that sort of stands the test of time to a certain extent. Um, I know when Olivia Sujic came on the podcast last season, she was saying that, you know, she's changed editors now three times, um, just through no fault of anyone's, just, you know, somebody left some agency and, you know, uh, someone left some publisher and this and that, and there's movement around. But there was, so there's no consistency on her, on, on the publishing front at all with her career, but she's had complete consistency with her agent. And I think that's a really important thing to come back to, isn't it? The idea that, that an agent is there for a career, not for one book, whereas an editor is there for one book. Yeah, I mean, that's what that's the hope. And obviously the relationship doesn't always work out and there's sometimes reasons why it doesn't. And sometimes, and, but usually when an, if an agent, and because agents do move agency sometimes, of course, and, and but they normally would take their clients with them in most situations. But obviously there are a lot of different kinds of agencies now, as you know, obviously <laughs> as Penny, because that's been particularly, I think that the, the case for you and with a hybrid yeah. agency. And so that can, that can sort of throw something slightly different into the mix. And, and actually what I've noticed is I think in the last few years there does seem to be a little bit of a trend for agents to move, move a bit more than they used to between agencies and also for people to I think publishing has become harder and harder and inevitably when things don't things don't always go right in people's publishing careers and inevitably sometimes the fallout from that can be the author editor relationship sometimes the fallout can be the author agent relationship where an author doesn't feel like they've got what they needed from their publishing experience and they feel like that's possibly because of their agent and sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't but you know and it doesn't really that it's not about apportioning blame it's more just about saying I think that these things are a little bit more fluid maybe than they used to be mm -hmm. um and that can that can also be quite hard for agents because agents work in lots of different ways some agents are salaried um some uh, and then they only receive commission when they are really earning you know quite high amounts um usually an agent to really start earning decent commission on top of their salary if they if they have a kind of full salary um would have to be making upwards of three times the amount of commission um uh, uh, upwards of three times their salary earning yeah. commission the amount of three times their, three times their salary ish um but some agents are work you know under the umbrella of an agency and are purely working on commission so mm -hmm. for example that's what that's that's what i do that's what a lot of agents in smaller and medium-sized agencies do and i was in a really fortunate position of um I see a really fortunate position of being made redundant from my quite long-term job in a big publisher, which I was really ready for that. And, and I'd wanted to become an agent for a while. And um, so it all worked out really well for me. And it meant that I could start with a completely blank slate. I had no, you know, I didn't, I didn't go from being a junior agent and being handed over a few clients and get to build from that. I had nothing, which meant that essentially I really pretty much earned nothing for the first two years because how it works is obviously that you, get some clients and you develop their work with them and it's a few months before it's ready to go out to editors and then you send it out to editors and uh they hopefully buy a book um from you but that debut advances in particular are tend to be either really low or astronomically high these days there's also a lot more polarization in terms of um, yeah. money that money that exchanges hands so um, and, and also you're earning commission on that advance that's also paid in January three on sometimes increasingly four tranches. Um, so you're making very small amounts of, even if you mm -hmm. sold four or five things in the first few months that you're an agent, you're making, you know, yeah, and actually one thing I was slightly unprepared for, although not completely because photography is also pretty bad for this, um, my contract took so long to draw up, which meant yeah. that my, um, my, the, this, the book sale was agreed and I didn't get my first payment for, I mean, I think it was almost five months. It was so long and it was okay. It was, yeah. That is long. There was, there was a specific issue going on in backlogs yeah, yeah. in, in the, the publishing house. But um, 
you know, I, actually as a photographer, I, I'm really used to getting waiting three months for money. So it was only slightly longer than I was yeah, And three to. months isn't, but I mean, still it's great five months it's... is quite, you know, it's quite a long time for your first advance that's supposed to be met, you know, that's done on signing a contract. But of course, you know, I, I had such a tight turnaround that, you know, I'd done three quarters, four, like or more than three quarters of the book by that point. Um, and I had to do that with no money. I had to fund that time myself. It's um, a real issue. It's really a huge difficult. issue. And actually I've had, some, uh, you know, an experience recently where, and, and fortunately, and this is what I love, this is when it goes right. And it's my favorite kind of thing where it was a particular kind of deal and a particular kind of contract. And it, it was a bit of an anomaly and it was part of this publisher is part of a big you know, one of the big four, big corporate. Um, and I think they just hadn't realised that there was there was an anomaly here with the structure of the way that this particular publisher imprint sort of division works within within the organization. And we had to point out that the way that it the way that this was structured was actually meant that people were that that future authors of theirs were almost kind of, were being expected to kind of fund particular aspect of the publishing themselves and how this was just you know if publishers try publishing's trying so hard to be inclusive they were automatically actually excluding people who couldn't afford and there was no you know it, it was just an anomaly but sometimes these things are really hard because there's layer upon layer and you've got a, a legal department and a contracts department mm -hmm. and you've got to go right to the top to say hang on we actually need to change this this contract for this imprint has to be different from all the others within this organization and um and the person that I was working with on on this, who's who's senior within that particular publisher within that organisation, is 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 fantastic, and I know her, and and she's somebody that I love to work with, and and we really were able to sort of collaborate on the message that we wanted to send higher up the organisation, and it all worked out fine. And not only did we get a result, did I get the result that I wanted for my client, obviously the aim, but we actually got a wider result for mm. you know other other authors who are doing going to be doing similar contracts kind of going forward and, and I love that kind of thing that's great that's when things can work at their best you know you say something everybody's listening and it gets resolved I think that's so interesting as well the kind of dual role that you've got to play I think it was one of your clients um who said that you basically need an agent who is going to be basically your shrink but also turns into a complete shark when it comes to <laughs> negotiations and contracts and that they really that you don't that they're fighting your corner when it comes to that um and yeah. that that's so important which leads me to something that i was just thinking about how important is it or how much do you kind of take into consideration when you're reading early work the fact that you that this relationship with a potential author that you're taking on how important is it to think well I can work with this person I like this person does that factor yeah I think that's I think that's really important and I'd say most of the time you know it's been harder to get that right actually over the past 18 months because it's been so hard to meet up with people so I've got clients I mean I've got clients that I haven't met at all um but you know, there's been lots of conversations and lots of Zooms and lots of, you know, and it's it's worked out fine so far. Um, it is important, but also you don't have to be each other's best friend. I mean, I think that's another thing. You know, every agent's got some some agents, not that many, but I think some agents are very much like, I'm literally your agent. I'm not ever going to be your friend. That's the relationship. This is my hard line. Um, and I definitely have some clients that you know inevitably we've become friends because we've spent a lot of time together and you know we get on very very well on that level we'd have probably been friends if we'd been colleagues in an, a workplace or whatever um but I'd like to think that I'm really approachable and friendly with all my clients in that they don't ever worry about asking me something or and I know that's not always the case like I do have a client who said that she was offered about a year before she met me she was offered representation by a really good effective agent she said she just she just turned it down because she knew that she'd be terrified every time she'd be phone up <laughs> to them but I also know that for some of this particular agent's clients their clients actually like that. They kind of yeah. want their agents to sort of more or less only be a shark. And that's fine too. And, yeah. I, and that's what I would say is that, you know, if you're submitting to agents, you can get a good idea of, of kind of how people work and what they're like. Not all agents use Twitter, of course, but, you know, 
you can kind of get an idea from there. A lot of agents, most agents do to some degree or another, and you can sort of see if they tend to be friendly and chatty and just wade in or if they're a little bit more aloof or whatever. And then you have an initial conversation with them and see if you feel comfortable with them. Um, and any agent who's not giving you time to make that decision and find the best fit for you, you, you should probably be avoiding anyway, I tend to think. I never want to have spoken to somebody and then have them be looking over their shoulder thinking, oh gosh, someone else offered me you know representation as well and maybe I made the wrong choice or I always want them to have the space and time to make that decision because it's because it should be you know your agent should be um for your whole career one would hope ideally um so uh, your your submissions have been closed recently but but when they do open again which we'll talk about I think in a little bit but um what are the kind of things that you would be really excited to see in your inbox both fiction and non-fiction you can talk about whatever you like um for fiction I I mean I, it's just gonna I'm I'm not gonna say anything particularly original because I think I want what probably most agents want at the moment which is that sort of sweet spot of something that feels like it has a really commercial hook but has really lovely writing and great characterization I mean I really really want the kind of I really want some exciting crime thriller the kind of thing that I can that you can really get your teeth into um I love authors like Renee Knight and Liz Nugent people who I, I like quite dark things I like I also I love things that like with a hint of gothic um, a little bit of like crimey, gothicy kind of crossover. I really enjoy, um, and some historical. But again, I mean, historical that sort of feels like it's speaking to something that's relevant now mm-hmm. as well. Um, and of course, my mind's gone completely blank of any <laughs> examples. Um, but I'm not a big. I guess more kind of. I love The Crimson Petal and the White. It's one of my favourites, one of my favourite novels ever. And so I wouldn't say I'm a huge fan of historical fiction. I'd say I'm a huge fan of certain books. Mm -hmm. Um, And I love writers like Laura Purcell, who've got that real kind of, who have a bit of a sort of dark gothic kind of feel. And I'd say, for me, the gold standard in crime and thriller at the moment is um, the brilliant Viper books. And I've been reading... um, quite a few of their books at the moment they have a fantastic editor there who um isn't afraid to to take on books that aren't necessarily a kind of aren't necessarily really obvious like last house on needless street is such a clever bold exciting book and it kind of takes you places that you really weren't expecting and i can imagine a lot of editors turning it down and going oh i didn't really understand like what that was or how to how to sell that. And in fact, you know, as we all know, it's done absolutely brilliantly. Um, and I just, uh, oh my gosh, my mind's gone completely blank. Oh yes, I just read Janice Hallett's The Appeal, um, which is also, which is which is done, uh, the first part of it's done almost entirely in emails um, and then short messages between the two young trainee lawyers who have been asked to kind of re- revive, um, review the evidence um, in the case and the evidence is these emails. So all the kind of character comes out through these actually like, taken on their own. They're kind of pretty mundane, but they just build the picture of these incredible, these characters who you know that if you met them on a day-to-day, you wouldn't think anything of them. They'd just be, they, they wouldn't seem particularly exciting or striking, but they've all got their own particular psychology that's going to feed into who did it and who did it and why. Um, mm. So I love that. Something a bit, something a bit different, but that is also just incredibly readable and 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 intriguing. Brilliant, readable and intriguing. That's a great combination. And I'm with you on the crimson petal and the white. I mean, oh my goodness, what a brilliant book! That and actually, that's mm. so kind of like character driven and it's all about getting inside inside the character and being you know being in the room or on the street with the character mm-hmm. and it's a very long book and it's it's one of I'm not I prefer normally shorter books and I like my I like my prose like a little bit pared back but there's something about you know somebody who can carry off a book pull off a book that's that length and it's and every page is compelling a bit like a little life mm-hmm. 
where yeah. I feel like recoiling in horror at a book that's 700 and whatever pages mm-hmm. long, but I honestly don't think it flags anywhere. moves you through it. Yeah, I, I'm really strange. I either like a really short, tight, really crisp, sharp prose. I love really sparse prose. A big minimalist fan, but sometimes a big maximalist books somehow actually sometimes does the same thing and I I read these books knowing that I'm never ever going to write anything like that just in complete awe going yeah oh I love this and I think you submerged in a story I know exactly what you mean and I think it's the difference between so I just start I've been I've had it by my by my bedside for absolute ages but I just started reading Daisy Johnson's sisters yesterday oh I was gonna ask you about that because (laughs) I read that last year and I was like do you like that dark? Do you like going that yeah. dark? Well, yeah. I mean, I haven't read, I've only read the first few pages because unfortunately I fell asleep. <laughs> Nothing to do with the book and everything to do with being like post-COVID exhausted. But um, but what I think is is something like A Little Life compared to something like that, where you've also where you've obviously got two extremes, is the um the intensity and also the fact that with sisters, and I can see this already, and I think that's true of all the best sort of short spare books you're just constantly filling in that they say almost nothing and and tell you almost everything and it's so exciting to me it's just so exciting to read that sort of spare prose with that incredible level of like intensity it's sort of visceral and you get so much out of you know a paragraph or a couple of sentences that that and then which a less skilled writer would take three pages to tell you and an equally skilled writer could take three pages to tell you and still maintain the level of intensity. Does that make sense? Yeah. So Hanya Yanagihara can do that by, by being very maximalist and telling and kind of giving you everything, mm. but it doesn't mean that your brain's going, Oh God, come on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which, you know, so it's, it's an equal, it's, it, it requires equal levels of skill, just of a different kind. It's like, a, I mean, I love a beautiful maximalist house and a beautiful minimalist house equally. It's like that. Mm, yeah, me too. Uh, but, I don't like, but I don't like clutter or something that's really spare because somebody hasn't got the imagination to put nice things in their house. But, but it's, it's a bit such like, a good um, comparison. <laughs> you know, it's a bit like, have you seen, because I'm obsessed with the Modern House website. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. The estate agents. Yeah. But now they've got their new website, which is for historic yeah. homes. And I spend, like, equal amounts of time just blasting over houses on both. And I'm like, these houses are opposite ends of the spectrum, yeah. but they are both just as beautiful. It's a brilliant way of looking at it, actually. That's going to be how I look at books. No, yeah, it's, like it is an one. excellent... Um, analogy actually Um, it works very very well Um, it's funny you know because I shoot interiors you know people often are like oh what do you like and I'm like what do you mean what do I like I like everything I like everything good I don't don't have a particular thing that I stick to and think is the only nice thing to photograph I like it's like what kind of books do you like I really like good ones (laughs) I just want you to tell me and it's funny because when I was thinking about opening to submissions again and I it's ridiculous I was like it doesn't matter what you put on your wish list or how there's no way of, of of ensuring that you only get the best books in your submissions nice. inbox of course and and everybody's got you know something to offer but it, but I think I have this uh, the other day I was just thinking well this is a ludicrous thought but I just really really just want me people to send me all the best things I, <laughs> I just want send me your good things. stuff yeah. yeah I think that's a good note to end on just send in good stuff guys yeah um I <laughs> know oh, actually one thing I think can be helpful some agents put what they don't ever want to see mm-hmm. which definitely if anyone's submitting do check if if an agent never wants to see horror or never wants to see YA or whatever it is but um but yeah you're right like I wonder if people do look very closely at what you do want interesting I put I tend to put I've got a rather lengthy kind of profile of, of here are all the books that I, here are the kinds of things I'm looking for and here are the books I liked best in each of these categories because I don't know if that helps people at all it just I just feel like it's like when I when agents ask for comps you know comparison titles it's not because we're trying it's not to to try and be reductive it's just that there's there's got to be some way of kind of narrowing things down and of, of of helping you to tell an editor or to tell an agent what you've written because there's just so much we're so like 
you know, we want your submissions and editors want agent submissions, but we're all also really overwhelmed and kind of deluged as well. So we, it's like we want, we want them, but we also want a quick way of going, is this something I should pursue? Mm, and that's yeah. really hard. It's hard to say to people, I don't really have time unless you can make it, you know, unless you can really get straight to the point and give me what I want, because that sounds really brutal. And everyone should be allowed the, the space and time to kind of develop that and find what that is. But the agent's inbox and the editor's inbox is unfortunately not that time and space. You need to find another way of getting that time and space for yourself before you get to the point of submitting. So, you know, writers groups, um, research where there's lots of places where you can find out how to, you know, what good approaches are maybe to kind of honing your, your work and your approach. Um, what level, I think that's really interesting because what level are you looking for people to kind of be at? What level are you expecting them to hit before they're approaching you? Um, I mean, I think that's quite hard to define because how does somebody know? Like no one ever really thinks that they've hit that level. Nobody really thinks they're, they're good enough or they're ready. It's about being like mm-hmm. bold enough to to kind of, I guess you have to have enough self-belief to believe that you're ready when you are, but enough self-awareness to not start submitting before you are. Mm. And I, it's really hard. It, it's very tough. Mm. It's very hard. But what I would say is there aren't any overnight successes. And most of the time when someone looks like they're having one, they've been at it for 10 years. Yeah. And don't ever yeah. believe otherwise. And also, you know, be really, really aware that anything that you're reading, when you're reading people's news and you're reading the bookseller and you're seeing all these six figure deals and sold in 12 territories, you know, before it was even published here, you're seeing it in the bookseller because it's news and it's news because it doesn't happen very often. Exactly. And the majority of writers are in the trenches just you know, there's no end to it either. There's only ever the next beginning. So you get the agent Mm -hmm. and that's not the end. You get your deal and that's just the beginning. You have publication day and you're like, well, now what? You know, and then there's the next book and it just goes on and on. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's that's been one of the kind of most rapid um, learning curves or the thing that nobody tells you that you've got to learn because it's always just next thing next thing next thing and next round of fear as well like yeah. there's the fear when you send it to agents mm-hmm. then there's the fear when it goes on submission then there's the fear every time you're sending something to your editor because you go oh, I've got this as good as I can get it but you think oh shit now what are they gonna think of it um and then they're yeah. waiting to hear back and then when it's going on submission for international rights and blah, 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 it just keeps going on. So you just need this kind of iron stomach, which I don't have. I think Margaret Atwood called it something like having the stomach of a tightrope walker all the time, mm. which is basically... Yeah, it. you just feel a bit sick a lot of the time. And yeah. I think you just have to accept that. There's no cure. Well, I think that's a really good point, isn't it? It's about accepting that this is part of it for agents, for writers, for everybody. It's... um it's not a steady job that you just sort of sign up for yeah. and, um, and it's a done deal. Is it? It's just, it's an ongoing process. Um, yeah. I, I had to throw myself last year after publication into just something completely different because writing something completely different, because I was just so scared of that, almost that void after all that really hard work in the lead up to publication. Um, and yeah. so I just threw myself into I, I think that's the, best, that's the best strategy. And when I send an author out on submission, for the, particularly when it's for the first time, I was like, can you just go, go away now, write something else while I'm doing this? Um, because I'm not going to be phoning you every five minutes with news because there's not going to be news every five minutes. So go and write yeah. something else. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, Terribly don't go, don't go on submission for the first time. Um, just as lockdown and COVID hit. That was the yeah, thing I had to learn. <laughs> you can avoid it. Really bad timing. Yeah. So um, thank you so much. I think we've kind of exhausted our questions. Um, thank you. At this stage is ask if you have been reading anything for pleasure, what you've been reading and what you've enjoyed recently. Um, yeah, so I've been, I have been reading, um, I've been reading those books that I, that, that I just mentioned. I've been reading, I've uh, just started reading, um, 
sisters and uh, just read the appeal. Um, but actually, and I haven't read it, I was, this is a bit of a cheat because um, as I've been recovering from COVID and I had a couple of days earlier in the week where I had a bit of a relapse, and I was like, well, I'm just going to go back to bed now and I'm going to watch um, something. So I watched Nine Perfect Strangers, the Leanne Moriarty. Oh, yeah, I watched uh, that recently. What did you think? <laughs> she's well she's obviously obviously character is is her big thing um and I love the way that they're that they are you know they're they're those sort of domestic suspense without well not even that's not even that domestic actually this one suspense without being actual thrillers and so she always I love the ending um I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoil it but she always does something unexpected with character towards the end and she's just everything that she does and I don't know how true it is to the book I imagine it's reasonably true to the book Um, but she always does unexpected things with character and she always finds the perfect balance I think between the familiar and the what we expect from Leanne Moriarty and the and the unexpected which is I think when um Johnny Geller does his how how to make a bestseller you know whatever his TED talk's called um you know it's about that kind of combination between the 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 familiar and the and something new and something different or unexpected um I'm actually really interested in in reading I've never read Leanne Moriarty but actually after Nine Perfect Strangers I'm really intrigued how it reads yeah. on the page does, and I'm and thinking about going back like, and reading it yeah and the how does she does it how does she do it is really useful and I think that's yeah. another piece of advice if writers feel like they're not quite cracking it or the or they are getting feedback from agents but their feedback and they're getting consistent feedback of maybe that there's something particular that's not quite right or not quite working or that they need to explore or develop more is to go back to the authors that you love that do that really well and and really kind of pick apart maybe sort of analyze how they do it mm-hmm. how do they do that how did they make me feel the way I feel um, and sometimes it's about how, you know, it's like when you were saying what really gets you with a submission. Um, if I like the concept and I like the idea of the story, then it's about how those first few pages make me feel. It's about that feeling of something rising in you that's sort of almost like, ooh, um, of excitement. And I think that's, those, that's a really good kind of thing to go and look at if you feel like you're not quite cracking it. It's like, what am I not quite, quite cracking and how do the authors that do it really well, how do they do it? Mm. excellent advice very excellent advice Ali what have you been reading this week I'm reading um for research actually but I'm reading Primo Levi um If This Is a Man which my goodness I've never read it before um and it's just incredibly stunning piece of memoir I think it does what the very best memoirs should do and it moves beyond the personal story to really just in-capture uh, the universal and its memoir at its finest, its memoir as a tool um, for social change and for knowledge and so much. And it is an incredibly difficult read in terms of that it's about the Holocaust. And I think what it does so well is we're so used to seeing it. I'm so used to watching films and seeing it on the screen but when you have something on the page somehow you have to enter the world more because you have to make the imagery for yourself and so it's so powerful to be reading this um reading this firsthand experience and it is harrowing and it really does what you were saying Julia it makes you feel just from the first page onwards it's it's very difficult read because there's so much trauma um and so much violence there on the page but it's an absolutely stunning book and I feel a bit kind of my goodness why have I not encountered this before but I'm so pleased that I've encountered it now but yeah it's it's a funny one because it's I wouldn't describe it reading uh for pleasure but you're certainly reading so that you can know more and understand more about the world and humanity so yeah it's very good it's a funny one isn't it sometimes like describing how much you love a book and realizing that it sounds like you really enjoyed it, like it was pleasurable, but it might not have been particularly pleasurable because of the topic. <laughs> but at the oh, same time, yeah. it's so, it, it like, yeah, it's hard to find the words almost to describe that kind of reading. And I think that can be the same with memoir, is that what stage are you, the reader, and what stage are you a voyeur as well is a really interesting yeah. and important thing to keep in mind when you're writing it, but also when you're reading it. Yeah. So how about you, Penny? What have you been reading? Well, I got Ruby Tando's new cookbook, Cook As You Are, which is so brilliant and I absolutely love it. And so I immediately ordered Eat Eat Up, her um, book that came out in, I think it was 2018 or 2019, which is a 
um, a nonfiction book about food and food culture and how we treat food and food and bodies. And it's it's a little bit political and it's a little bit personal. So it's a teeny bit memoir, lots of sort of nonfiction. It's a really lovely hybrid book. Um, I'd read lots of Ruby's um, journalism, food journalism. And so this was the first time I'd read um, Eat Up though. And it's brilliant. It's so, um, it's so... The way she talks about food culture and, you know, the kind of cult of wellness and all of these things is so interesting and insightful um, and inclusive. And yeah, it's just really fabulous. If anyone enjoys reading about food culture, I would highly recommend it. it sounds really interesting. Well, thank you so much for um, being here, Julia. It was lovely to talk to you. And I'm sure um, it's just so much, um, so much gold for listeners who I'm sure of which I'm sure loads of people are about to submit considering submitting writing aiming for submission so um I'm sure it's been incredibly helpful oh no it was so fun thank you and I'm gonna I'm hoping that I can reopen again in um at some point in November that's my plan well so when people are checking to see whether you're open to submissions and indeed what your submission guidelines are where should they go um, so I think this is probably true for most agents. If you go to the agency website and you go to the agent's profile, um, generally it will say, um, I think if an agent's not open, it just generally says this person's closed to submissions at the moment. If it doesn't say they're closed, then I think you can assume that, that they're open. Um, but definitely always worth checking because what people generally do when they're preparing for submission is they'll, they'll do like a spreadsheet of the agents. Um, but sometimes they, they then don't submit for two or three months and then they don't double check back. Um, and it's, it's probably just good to do that just so that you don't accidentally kind of waste a waste a submission yeah no I totally agree that's excellent advice and we'll put your um, website in the show notes as well and Twitter is a good place to come find you isn't it yeah, Twitter is a great place to come find me. Um, I generally, I mean, I've been a bit quiet recently because there's just been a lot going on. But um, yes, I am usually there chatting to people. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, both. It's been great. Thank you. You've been listening to Not Too Busy to Write with Ali Miller and Penny Winsor. You can find show notes, including the best ways to get in touch with us, as well as any reading recommendations mentioned in the episode at nottoobusytowrite.com. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe. And please go ahead and leave us a little review. It really helps others to find the podcast. You can find Ali on Instagram at Ali underscore Miller underscore writes and Penny at Penny Windsor. Music and editing is by Ewan Miller McMeekin.